We walked out of that corner office, went on the parking lot, went into our car, slapped our doors, and then we both started screaming out of joy. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Hola, a very well welcome back to the Swisspreneur Show, 199 episodes after your very first episode. It's an honor and a pleasure at the same time to have you back here on the show. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be back and um, uh, a huge shout out to you and the team for taking what Chris and I started and, and really um, making it super successful in Switzerland and, and getting a lot of reach. I'm, I'm super proud of, of you and, and the team. Thank you so much. I mean, it's a lot of fun and a really dedicated and amazing team to That's work great. with. So we are just getting started, I have the feeling. So just a quick intro. Obviously, you are the founder of Swisspreneur, but you also founded and successfully sold Wildfire. You sold the company to Google in 2012. And today you are the founder and president at Prisma where you basically change education for fourth to ninth graders. And today we want to do sort of a special episode, basically as an anniversary episode, if we want to call it that way, where we want to address the always burning questions that every startup and entrepreneur has. And let's just jump right into the first section. It's about the founding team. So what does the ideal founder team look like from your perspective and with your experience? I, I think there's not just one formula. Uh, I think successful founding teams come in many different flavors. Um, I think for me personally, I like two founders. Um, it's kind of easier to go through the lows and, and more enjoyable to share the highs. Uh, I think in my mind, successful founding teams have very complementary skills. So I think you need to have at least one founder that's a rock star with product, uh, ideally technical, uh, uh, an eye for design um, and, and strategy. And, uh, and then I think the other founder needs to be a marketing and sales machine. So I, I think these are the, the, uh, the, skills, the, the skills that you need to have as a founding team. Um, and and then I think you got to share. Both founders got to share. Um, got to be able to to craft. Are good. Need to be good at uh, crafting a compelling vision and strategy for the company. Uh, they got to have similar values, and um, and I think like one characteristic that's often underrated and is. I think very important for me is to that both founders need to have a very high ethical compass. Uh, it's it's kind of um, obvious, but but often often overlooked. So uh, I think these are some of the um, skills you got to have to to make your startup successful. Right. And the next question is basically, where do I find the right co-founders? Uh, in your case, outside of your marriage, I would say. Do you have any <laughs> tips for that? Well, it's, it's, I think it's, it's literally a marriage. Uh, so it doesn't really make a difference whether you're married or not. But um, I, I, I think I would go where there's like high talent density. So um, 
If you get into Stanford, Harvard, or MIT, I think that's certainly a good place to find your co-founder. If you don't get into a top program, try places like uh, ODF, like On Deck Fellowship. Uh, That's kind of a a new startup that's focused on building a Stanford in the cloud, Um, has very ambitious, driven, and smart young founders that are working on stuff. Uh, If you get into Y Combinator, that's a great place to find a co-founder or any breakout startup, um, you know, like the Stripe or Airtable or Brex. Um, There's actually a really great site um, called Breakout List and they publish every year kind of the breakout startups. Uh, And I suggest you go and try to apply for one of these breakout startups. That's I think where you get the the best uh, chances to find a co-founder. I think Google, like big tech, Google, Facebook, Netflix. I think these are potentially also decent places, although you have people there that have kind of a little bit of a different risk profile. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think I will put big tech at the bottom of my list. Awesome tips. And, you know, often a company also can start as a, as a side hustle, as they often call it, as a side business. You still work on, on your day job, then you start playing around with ideas, you acquire your first customers. So the big question here that we often get is, when is the right time to go all in as a founder? Should that already be at the beginning from day one, or is there a perfect moment or a good moment to go all in as a founder? I mean, I, I think um, it's it's great to kind of, do it on the side initially when you kind of validate certain things. But but then I, I think if your validation phase pans out positively and, and um, kind of confirms some of the assumptions you made, I think um, you got to go all in very quickly because you want to give your startup your best chance, the, the best chances. And that requires like, everything and more from you. So, so I think, um, it's, it's, to me, it's all in or nothing, um, because otherwise you don't give your startup the the best chances to succeed. Yeah. I, I fully support that take. Now we talked about the founding team, uh, equally important is of course, also the business idea, what you're actually working on. So how can you tell if a business idea is a good one or not? Um, I like I personally start with my own problems. Like if I look back at my startups that I've I've, I've started, um, I always kind of always was revolving around my own problems, trying to solve my own problems. That's kind of a a good start because you you're your own customer, right? Um, and and then I I think once I do have an idea that kind of addresses my own problem, then I, I go very quickly, I hone in and, and kind of evaluate whether my idea is focused on an inflection point, um, shifts in technology, shifts in user behavior, shifts in regulation. Um, and kind of a good question to ask yourself is, why is now the right time to do this? Uh, or in other words, um, why was this idea not possible five years ago? Um, so I think that's, in my mind, 
has a lot to do with timing. And in my mind, one of the most important questions um, to, to ask yourself when you validate an idea. So, so I think that's, that's kind of my top question. And then if, uh, if I can get some very good answers uh, to that question, then I go down and, and evaluate my idea further. I often figure out, is there a way to build a product or a service that's really 10x better than the status quo? Um, can I put together the right team with the right skill set? Um, is there an efficient way to go to market? Is the product or service that you're going to offer defensible in the long run? And do I have any sort of unfair advantage that potential competitors may not have? So I think these are just some of the questions that I ask myself. Um, and, uh, and that I kind of, it's like my checklist that I go through to, to figure out whether like an idea has potential. You emphasize the importance of the why now question. How do you answer that question for Prisma? Um, I mean, Prisma, we, we can dive into that a little bit later in the interview, but um, I think education, especially K-12, but also higher ed is like the pandemic really triggered in my mind, like an inflection point of parents being um, being open for to, to alternative education models. And I think Although in the media, the main narrative was that like virtual learning was a disaster for kids. Um, I, I think we, we're seeing a lot of families that are actually or like arguing the opposite, uh, that virtual learning has been kind of a game changer for their child academically and socially too. And so, um, so I think there's, there's kind of a, a shift in user behavior that I'd argue um, will be, be it's, it's kind of this wave that's forming of parents that are um, less and less satisfied with a traditional education system and are um, trying alternatives. Yeah, I think that's a great example. So people can also understand what you exactly meant by why is the time you're right right now. And in terms of the business idea, what role do market size and also market growth actually play? Is that something that you also look at or are you really purely focused on your own problem? I mean, I, I think there's there's startup opportunities in like markets that are big and in existing. And then there's um, there are markets, they're non-consumption markets, markets that don't exist yet or that are small, um, but have the potential to grow very fast and can become very big in the future. And I, I think there's opportunities in both um, markets, um, either your small startup that um, can can get into an, an existing market. I'd argue that's that's the harder thing to do. Um, and then you, you can also uh, address your startup like or go into a um, non-consumption market that's growing fast. Um, there's opportunities in both. I'd argue that kind of the latter has more potential and um, there's, there's more potential to build kind of breakout groundbreaking startups. Amazing. 
And you also mentioned the different questions that you ask yourself when you start playing around with an idea and, and basically the steps that you take. Are there any additional recommendations from your side when it comes to validating the business idea? I mean, I, I think um, w once you've kind of gone through that exercise, you want to um, go very quickly to actual potential customers and talk to them. Um, and and I, I think that's, that's how you get additional data points to validate your business idea. Um, I think the kind of the validation questions that I mentioned before, you can do this fairly quickly, but then kind of the, the more time intensive part can be to, to really um, reach out to custom potential customers and, and really understand like, do they have the same problems as I do? And, and, um, and like really try to become a domain expert in, in that problem area. So, so I think, um, that's that's kind of the next step that I normally do. Be very, very close to your customer. And at a certain point in time to also validate the idea, you might also build an MVP. From your experience, what actually makes a good MVP? Um, I mean, a good MVP, like in theory, is always kind of bare bone in terms of features and design, um, but provides a solution that captures the pivotal need that the customer has and hasn't had so far in the market. Um, in other words, it has product market fit. Um, so, so I think that's, that's kind of a good MVP in my mind. It's, it's always easy to say that because in my mind, that's probably the, the hardest thing to do is to get your product or service to product market fit. Um, and, and then I think once you go from like zero to one, like once you have product market fit and then you scale the, the company, I think there's known playbooks, um, but, but kind of getting to product market fit can be very, very challenging. Yeah, I think that's a good topic. We we can mix it here a bit because that would be the next topic that we also have on the list. What does product market fit actually mean? Like, how do you realize if you have product market fit or not? I mean, it's it's really like there's it, it's it's pretty hard to kind of define. There's not really kind of a method to get to product market fit. It's a little bit kind of being being really good at product or developing the service um having the right intuition um and 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 then being close to the customer and getting this feedback loop going um but but i think signals that kind of show good product market fit um are when 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 you talk to when you demo your product your mvp and customers are super excited or when I remember at wildfire, like our app sometimes went down and customers went, became super angry with us. <laughs> and that kind of shows like they, uh, they really want and need the product. Um, or I remember we demoed wildfire to early customers and, without even asking, they said like, how much does it cost? Like, can I, 
can I pay for it? Um, and and then I think another signal is if it grows organically um, on an exponential curve. I think that these are I think all signals that that kind of show you hey you're onto something. Um, I think another example from my wildfire days is that we we were working on our MVP and we we um, we had the idea. Um, to, to do an early beta program uh, for early customers. And so TechCrunch published an article um, about us and the product was still in beta. And we just said like, hey, the first hundred customers that sign up get an invite. And we got like 5,000 signups. Wow. And so like we, we really felt like, hey, there's momentum and interest in the product and uh so these are all signals that kind of show that you're you're onto product market fit kind of if you want to read more about this topic i think um there's there's one blog post by raul vora um the founder of superhuman um i think it's on the first round review blog uh that kind of um illustrates how he went through like a very rigorous process how to get to product market fit. So I'd recommend to read that. Uh, Paul Graham, uh, like the founder of YC, wrote some essays on that topic. Uh, Sam Altman and Mark Andreessen wrote some articles too. So I'd, um, I'd recommend you read that. I think in addition to that, uh, there's a product market fit survey uh, by Sean Ellis, you go to pmfsurvey.com and uh, it kind of shows you a method um, and kind of provides you with a survey template um, that that gets you to product market fit. So these are all like good background readings uh, for founders who haven't found product market fit. Yeah, amazing resources. Thank you for sharing them. So then after building the MVP, at one point, you then have to actually build a real product out of that if you're uh, progressing towards product market fit. So what's important when actually building a real product out or after the MVP phase? I mean, I, I think during the MVP phase, there's a bunch of like, there's two, three engineers probably in a garage um, that are hacking together um, like a, an MVP and and um and then like once you have product market fit and you start getting more and more customers you got to build your engineering product and design team and you got to be become kind of more process focused not super heavy process but like having kind of an agile method where you do sprints whether they're like a week or two weeks long doesn't really matter um, and you create a backlog of features. Uh, you want to stay agile, but you also want to develop some kind of um, velocity um, on like how quickly you can uh, jam out features. And, um, and I think there, the engineering team, the product team, and the design team need to work super closely together. I think uh, I'd recommend that like these three components are very much embedded um, together, and uh, and I think it it becomes becomes more of a question how well you can oil your process um, in uh, in jamming out features, right? 
And in that regard, if you made might not make any good progress towards product market fit, you also face the tough decision where you have to say, do I actually continue with my idea or is it time to give up on my great idea? How do you determine whether you should give up or pivot uh, your your business idea or not? I mean, I I think, um, I mean, it's it's a really hard question because, you know, there's, there's so many examples of founders who've, just stuck it out and then made it really big. And what if they would have stopped earlier? Um, so, so I think th- that's a really tough question. But I, I'd say if you if you just consistently don't see demand, um, I mean, basically all the signals that I mentioned before, like if demand is not picking up, if customers don't want to pay you, or if you have a high churn rate, there might be something wrong. Um, yeah, I, I think I think there's so many startups with great ideas, and and like I, I think that timing question comes into play again. There's, uh, yeah, founders with great ideas, but they might be too early or like they might be too late because competition is is ahead of them. Um, so I think there's so many factors, and and um, it's probably one of the toughest questions to to kind of figure out like whether you wanna pivot or continue or, or shut down. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's all I can say. Uh, I mean, it's a fair take. And I think it also really shows the importance of timing that you mentioned before. I mean, right. that's really something that we heavily underestimate as a founders because we think we have the best product that we just built. It's so new. It's so good. But if the timing is not right, nobody cares. Yep. Absolutely. I agree. In that regard, I also wonder about customer or buyer persona. That's also something that we get often asked. How do you actually figure out who your ideal customer or your customer persona is? I mean, I, I think initially you want to focus on the power users. Like, um, I, I think if you, like, what, what's important um, driving product is that you get feedback from customers Um and initially, I often look at the power users, um, and but but that you don't imp- that the customer feedback really informs you and gives you an opinion about the product. You, I, th- I think the worst thing you can do is kind of to build everything your customers want. I, I think you gotta take the feed- customer feedback and then really translate that into a very clear opinion how the product should work and focus on and and then execute on that i I think some of the best products like are very opinionated um so so i think that's that's what important that's what's important in my opinion um when it comes to to customer personas yeah that's basically also your job as a founder right to have the clear opinion and see where the market or the, the product trend is going so you can actually build it before people might even know that they want or need this. Correct, correct. I agree. The other big struggle that we often hear from entrepreneurs is how do I determine the right pricing for my product? I just wonder, how did you do that with, with Wildfire? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it was like, I, my recommendation is that like you start charging from day one um, because I think that's the best validation 
that you provide value, that your product provides value to the customer. Um, and then I think my second recommendation is to keep it simple um, and kind of a no-brainer. Um, we initially with Wildfire, we started going after small and mid-sized businesses and we really wanted to make it a no-brainer to use our product, uh, but we wanted to have it pride. Like we want to, we we wanted to charge for it. So um, I think the like we we really came came up with that pricing like on the fly. We we said you know Wildfire initially was a product where you were able to set up a social media marketing campaign um, based on a specific length. So the the most basic plan was, I think, five dollar setup fee, and and then a daily charge of ninety nine cents. So, um, if like b- basically, our opinion was, if you can't pay that as a business, we don't want you. Mm-hmm. And um, and then on the other hand, businesses that were willing to pay for it, we wanted to make it a no brainer and and very affordable. To, to use our product. So that's kind of how we approached it. Then once we grew and we we developed the platform, et cetera, we, we started um, having an enterprise plan too. And we, try, um, we tried to like upgrade, like ha- have various upgrade features like the, the standard um, SaaS businesses have nowadays. Um, so I think that's how we approached it. Like keep it simple, charge from day one, I think I feel that's that's kind of my recommendation. And also a big takeaway here for from my side is like if you then develop new features and you also build more value that you then offer them in an upgrade, but don't just necessarily include them in the already cheap plan that you have in place. Right, so I think that's right. also good learning. Totally agree. So along the process, eventually you might also need some funds. You might want to get some investors on board. So the first question is actually, should I fundraise or should I bootstrap my company? I mean, there's also no clear answer. I think it depends, right? Um, I think if you have a product or service um, that has the potential to scale through technology, I think often it makes sense to raise some money. Um, But if you have like a business that grows in a more linear fashion, um, then it's maybe worth to bootstrap. so, so I think it, it really depends on on what business you have and the potential to scale. Um, that's 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 kind of my answer to that question. Yeah, I, I think it's a fair point. Uh, it really does depend. And now, assume that we want to go for fundraising. When should I actually raise money? Is there a good timing or a good moment when I should start the process? Well, I, I think you should start a process when you don't need the money. I, I think that's that's my recommendation. I think I see so many founders that look at the fundraising process as a transaction rather than a partnership. And, um, and so I feel almost from day one, you should start building your network with potential investors and approach them and... Just once, once you have the idea and you've validated it, and maybe you have a prototype or maybe even some wireframes, you should you should go and knock on their door and 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 get advice from them, um, because often 
angel investors and VCs are former founders and they can provide you with some very valuable advice. And I think that's how you build a network of potential investors. And um, that's how you approach the fundraising process as a partnership rather than a, as a transaction. So that when you need the money, you know these people already and um, and you don't need to, it's not this kind of crazy, stressful process. Uh, so I think that's what I recommend. If you if you start off that kind of networking partnership process, I think uh, it's important that you find, um, don't look at firms, look at partners in a, in a, a VC partnership um, and look at them, uh, what their specialty is. Uh, I think a great place to look into this is angel.co or NFX Signal. Um, it's a great database to kind of uh, look at um, VCs and angel investors from all over the world, um, and you can segment them in various kind of industry verticals and interests. Um, and then I, I think a new trend that I see emerge is that creators are becoming investors because startups realize that traditional VCs, they don't necessarily have a lot of reach, whereas creators, super successful creators have reach. And um, to some extent, it makes sense for creators to invest in your business. And then at the same time, you kind of get get a marketing channel. Um, so I think that's kind of a new trend I've noticed here in Silicon Valley um, that's, that's kind of emerging. Yeah, hopefully we're, we'll be able to replicate that here in Switzerland soon. Yeah, maybe five years from now. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. <laughs> So what, once you then identified the, the right investors, the partners at the, at the firms that you're looking at, how do you actually reach out to them? Is there any best practice that you can recommend? I mean, I, I think like email them, like don't write like a super long email. It needs to be kind of very succinct and to the point because all these people are super busy and um, just be authentic, just be yourself and um and try to somehow stand out. Um, so I think, and, and, and then I, I think obviously try to get to these people through your network. Do you know, do you have any friends or any contacts that know these people? So personal intros um, go go a long way. So I, th I think that's that's how I'd suggest you approach kind of the, the, the first contact. Right. And what's a good fundraising story from your perspective or ask differently, how do you yeah. get their attention in that email? Yeah, I mean, a fundraising story, I mean, I can't speak for the, for others, but like our fundraising story for what, so my, my first venture was a travel business that was kind of more a linear business. We didn't raise any funds there. It was all bootstrapped. My sec, my second venture was wildfire um, there. We, it was kind of a very unusual path. We um, self-funded initially, we had our own savings and then my parents put, I think 20K into the business. And, um, and then we managed to kind of get to an MVP and we were lucky with timing that um, we, like Wildfire was initially sitting, kind of leveraging the Facebook platform as a marketing channel. And um, we were lucky at the moment, at, at the time that Facebook 
was very interested in having developers build apps on top of their Facebook platform. So they gave us a quarter million dollar grant, not equity investment, just a grant. So we were able with these 250,000, we were able to get the business to cash flow positive. Um, and then when you have a cash flow positive business here in Silicon Valley, it's a small place and um, word got around the VC world that we, yeah, we're, we're kind of this tiny startup, cash flow positive, growing fast. And, uh, and so VC started knocking on our door um, without us reaching out. And then I think the, the unusual path we took to is that we basically skipped the VC round. Uh, round. We, we went straight to uh, private equity. We decided not to, to go do our Series A with a VC firm, but with a private equity firm because um, the founder terms were, were favorable um, and, and we really liked the, the general partner there. So, uh, so that, that was my fundraising story. And, um, and I, I think through, through that process, we were able to retain the majority of ownership and, and, um, until the very end, until we sold the business. So, um, that was, that was an unusual story, but it kind of worked out. And, um, and then with Prisma, we haven't raised any money. We got a lot of interest from ECs, but we're self-funding for now. And um, and who knows? We'll 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 see whether um, it makes sense to to get some funding at some point. But for now, we're fine. So Amazing. so as you can see, I think um, fundraising can like can yield a successful outcome in various different ways. So there's no no silver bullet. Water damage or a fire in the office building can mean the end of your startup if you're not properly injured. Whether I'm just starting a new company or growing fast, the topic of insurance is often not a top priority. And that's totally fine. Yet, it's hugely important to be properly covered here. On a personal recommendation, I turned to the insurance broker WSR Partner with my first company. The advice is highly professional and completely independent. As an expert, WSR Partner understands the situation of my startup and obtains quotes from various insurance companies so that I can choose the best offer. They are paid directly by the insurance companies. There were no costs for me at all. Because we work with Alex and the team of WSR Partner, we offer you a free consultation. Get independent and professional advice, whether for startups or an insurance check for established companies. Book your free appointment now at www.swisspinner.org slash WSR. Right, but I think for me, the biggest takeaway here of your story is really money follows traction. So you had significant traction, you were cash flow positive. So then you don't even need to worry that much about finding investors. Focus on building a good business, building traction, and then it will be so much easier to raise money if you don't have any traction yet. Yes, correct, correct. The big question here is also, you skipped the VC around, but what would you recommend? How much should I raise and how much equity should I give up as a founder? If I'm, I know this heavily depends on the business case and everything, but yeah. if I do my first round, what would do you think is, is like a good amount there to, to give up equity-wise? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's really hard, but I, I think, um, and probably varies also in Europe versus the US, mm -hmm. et cetera. But, but uh, 
and and it's probably better to to ask a VC that question. But but I I've heard anything between five and twenty percent in your seed round, um, depending where the business is at, how seasoned the founders team is, um, and then it's often my recommendation is to often kind of um, have like raise 50% more money than you actually need because you'll also, you'll all, you want to secure your runway and make sure the money lasts until your next round. So it's, it's good to, to raise more like 50% more money. That's kind of my rule of thumb. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think I'm probably not the best person to, uh, to, to answer that question. Fair point. Now, let's also focus on a different topic that is super important, growth and culture. Um, if people Google for wildfire and if they look at uh, your YouTube videos when you actually announced the acquisition by Google, I think people even not being involved in your business can tell you had a very strong company culture. So how do you best shape your company values and also culture as a founder? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at wildfire, we... We we basic we just we just did it. We never took a very kind of um, we didn't take a, a very rigorous approach to defining company values and company vision and strategy, etc. Mm -hmm. And and we we really felt that at some point when we were like two hundred people or like at, at kind of at that size that that was lacking. But like to, to have a clear vision, a strategy, company values. But I, I think we just did it by doing um, at Wildfire. And in retrospect, that's, I think, one thing I would do differently um, at Wildfire to, to really almost from day one to very clearly define three to five company values. And I think they should be very, very much aligned with who you are at the founder, because at the, at the end of the day, every, in my mind, everything culturally trickles from the top um, down. And so, so to me, it's like defining three to five very clear and concise company values that are authentic to you as a founder. And then you implement a mechanism that's aligned, like kind of a, a bold mechanism that's aligned with your values. So let me give you an example. One of my mentors at Wildfire was um, the first VP of engineering at Amazon. And he worked obviously very closely with Jeff Bezos. And for Jeff Bezos, like one of the key company values was for Amazon was to um, frugality um, because if the organization is frugal, then they can pass on these cost savings to the customer. Um, and so what he, what Jeff did uh, was he, he built desks. You probably heard that story. He built desks out of um, doors from Home Depot. And so he built that desk for himself. And then every new employee that joined the company had to build their own desk with a Home Depot door. And so that kind of, um, it's kind of a mechanism that he used to really kind of anchor that value of frugality. 
And uh, the more you can do that uh, around your company values, the I, I think the more ingrained uh, the, the values will be. Yeah, I think that's much, much stronger than just putting posters on the wall to really live it and lead by example in that regard. Exactly, exactly. When you did hiring at Wildfire, also in, in your other companies, what is more important to you? Do you hire for skills or for culture fit? I mean, I, I think in an ideal case, you want to, it's not one or the other. It's mm-hmm. you want to, it's like skills and culture. Right. Um, but but when you grow really fast, that's that's kind of always a trade-off. Um, but yeah, I think you want to, you want to hire for skill and culture because I, I think um, I, I think in almost every case where we just hired for one or the other, it somehow didn't work out in the long run, and uh, and and I think both you got to have a very skilled person, but then you you got to have also um, someone that fit, fits in culturally, uh, and if one of these two don't. Uh, don't apply then then it's it's really tough to build a good team right did you have any favorite sort of source of hiring the good talent like did you you know work closely with universities or any other places where you hire people from yeah great question i think what what we did we um we got a lot of referrals from existing employees uh like over 50 percent of employees came through referrals we kind of had a referral pro we set up a referral program we also very early howard hired our internal recruiting team um i i think one of the advantages of having your internal recruiting team is that they really know your company and they they can screen for skill and culture Whereas if you work with recruiting firms, they, they just want to get their commission. They don't really right. care about, right. um, uh, about cultural fit, nor they, they just want to transact, right? So um, I, I think these two, like focusing on referrals from employees and, and uh, building your own internal recruiting team is, uh, is a great way to, to build a team that's uh, aligned with values, uh, with, with your culture and, and, and skill, skills you need. Before you already mentioned something that you would do differently today, looking back at the wildfire story. So I also wonder what are the biggest challenges when scaling uh, up a company and how did you solve them at wildfire or in general, in terms of hiring growth and culture? Um, yeah, I mean, I think when um, when you grow a team, like initially you're kind of a bunch of engineers in a garage and everyone does everything, right? Like you wear a lot of different hats, but then when you grow, uh, you become b- bigger and you got to specialize. Um, people got to specialize in certain things. Um, and, and I think three challenges that arise when your team grows is how well you can communicate um, across the team, uh, decision-making, how are decisions made, and and kind of disseminating common knowledge across the org. And, um, and there's, I, I think there's no silver, like there's no uh, clear, clear way. It's all about organizational design and um, 
organizational design is never like, I've never seen an organizational design that's perfect. So it's kind of always evolving and you got to adapt it as the company grows. Um, I think what's different today than back when we did wildfire is that there's, there are, there are a lot of people that have given advice, great advice on how to scale um, an organization. I think there's some great books to read, um, like Ben Horowitz from A16Z, like The Hard Things About Hard Things. Um, he gives some great advice in that book. Uh, there's a guy called Elad Jill um, that wrote the high growth, um, the high growth book. I think it's yeah, called exactly. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of great break, great practices, uh, best practices in these books. Um, and um, and I'd I'd advise to to kind of read these books as a founder. Um, I think I think there's a lot of other resources nowadays, um, but but I think I'd start with these two books. Yeah, again, amazing resources, recommendations, perfect. We, we're going to put all of that in the show notes so people can actually follow and uh, yeah look at them. Now, the last part of the entrepreneurial journey is basically the exit. Of course, we also want to talk about the exit. So what makes my company attractive for a potential buyer? You know, you went through that process. So how do you experience that? I mean, I, I think they like great exits, like companies are bought, not sold. Um, so I think if you need to if you need to engage an investment bank to go and knock on everyone's door, um, that's maybe the wrong, like you, you don't always have the luxury to, to kind of have a lot of interest from, from your, from potential acquirers. But I think in general, you get the most successful exits when um, your startup is scarce and you, you're one of the only ones that like does offers that product or service and so um and and you do something that's strategically important for a potential acquirer and so um i think that's that's the situation that we were in at wildfire uh we've we've kind of built this social media marketing platform and there were there were like two other big companies um two competitors they got bought up before us by Salesforce and Oracle. And then there were like a bunch of other companies, large acquirers that were looking for a social media marketing platform and Google was one of them. And then there was a bidding war and that drove up the price. And and um, and so that's that's kind of the, the ideal scenario you wanna be in if you wanna sell your company. Um, and, and, and so that, that kind of yields an, a successful exit, in my opinion. Uh, if you need to, if no one's knocking on your door for an acquirer and you are, um, you need to invest, engage in an investment bank to kind of get your business sold, that's, that's probably not necessarily the best approach, in my opinion. Right. And then with all that interest that was there, you still have to face decision, should I sell or should I not? So when is it a good time to sell and when is it better to stay on and not sell? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in our instance, we, we were kind of like at the crossroads. Do we um, 
stay independent. And I mean, we were talking to investment banks about going public at the time. Um, and we, yeah, we were kind of at the crossroads. Do we stay independent and potentially become a consolidator ourselves and become kind of a large marketing platform? Or do we combine forces with like uh, an acquirer and realize the vision through through having a platform uh, um, of a bigger company. And I think, um, I mean, to be very honest, we, we were, we were tired and kind of burned out from four years of growing a, a company from like two, two people to 400 people. And we looked at the landscape too, um, of, of like how the forces evolve in that um, social media marketing landscape. And we thought it would be a better move to combine forces with, with Google. And then I, I think we, we talked to many potential acquirers and Google was by far the, the big standout. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether we would have sold if Google wouldn't have knocked on our door um, because to us, Google was um, culturally kind of a really good fit. They were very product focused, very visionary, and um, and I think at the end of the day, it was it was the right decision. Well, I, I love these you know background stories. I think it's amazing to to sort of join that with the lessons learned and the the additional experience that you can share. That that's amazing. Then when you actually had the negotiations, you know, what's important to consider besides the pure price in such an exit deal? So what were the important things that you also had to look at and negotiate? I think I might have told you the story before, but we we were, um, it was kind of surreal with with Wildfire. We um, we had a number, like the, the process with Google went super fast. Um, I think they called us up on a Thursday evening um, expressing interest and requesting a meeting the next morning and with uh, like Corp Dev. We met with them. They seemed to like what they saw. And um, then uh, they wanted to like Susan Wojcicki, who's now leading YouTube, um, reached out to us personally requesting a meeting on a Sunday, which was, uh, even for Silicon Valley was fairly unusual. <laughs> and, um, and then that meeting went well. And then we heard from Nikesh Aurora, which was at the time, the COO, and he invited us to a meeting too. And I, I think at that time we knew they would give us an offer. So we, I remember we, we entered this boardroom or corner office of Nikesh and he was sitting there with the corp dev person. He um, kind of the corp dev person gave us kind of slipped us over a one pager where they presented their offer. And I remember I kind of skimmed through and before the meeting, my wife and I, we kind of talked about like, okay, we would sell at X um, if it would be higher than X. And I kind of skimmed through the one pager they gave us and it was more than 2x the the price. And, you know, like on the outside, you've got to stay cool and and um, and say, hey, no big deal. We got to think about it, etc. Um, and on the inside, you, you say like, holy shit, like this is 
this is surreal. And uh, I don't remember much from that meeting, but but uh, I, I remember we walked out of that corner office, went on the parking lot, went into our car, slapped our doors, and then we both started screaming um, <laughs> out of joy. Uh, and 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 so that that was kind of our experience, our acquisition experience. That was great. That was kind of a, a great um, memory that sticks in my mind. The other thing was when we announced it to the team because I, I think the whole process was there were maybe five people that knew about the transaction and then um, I think once we were done with due diligence I think that was, went three weeks and uh, and then it came to the announcement so we um, we sent out an email saying Hey, we want to do an all hands. Send out an email to the whole team saying we want we want to organize an all hands and have an announcement. And so we kind of got the whole team together. And one of our five people that was in the loop put together this great kind of animated presentation with music that kind of went through the whole history of Wildfire. And at the end, uh, there was kind of this logo that was zoomed in Wildfire plus Google. And then everyone kind of jumped up and started screaming out of joy. And I, I think to me, that was the most um, emotional and, and uh, the greatest experience from, from that whole sales process to kind of see the confirmation from the team um, that uh, everyone was really excited to join Google. Uh, so, so I think that's, that's kind of my personal story. Uh, I, I think, I mean, obviously kind of the financial outcome is important for the investors and for yourself too. But, but I think that's almost secondary. You, you want to make sure that once you're acquired and you start integrating, et cetera, like your team gels culturally with the acquirer too. Um, because I think then you set yourself up for long-term success uh, within a bigger entity. Uh, so that that was a long story, but I hope um, I hope the audience uh, can enjoy it. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And by the way, I think that YouTube video is still online. So just yeah, uh, exactly. look for yeah, Wildfire you... Google acquisition, right? Yes, correct, correct. I, I was the guy that was kind of recording the video and I was kind of all jittery because <laughs> um, I, I, I was quite emotional too. So uh, um, the, the footage is not not ideal. But uh, still, people get a good impression about what happened on that day. Right. And, you know, that amount of money is also life-changing for you on a personal level. So what do you do with the money after the exit? <laughs> good question. Um, I mean, I, I think we, we didn't change. We didn't want to change our lifestyle a lot. I mean, I, well, I still have a Nissan Leaf. Um, and uh, and I, I think... Like what we did is we, we set up our own investment fund um, where we manage investments. So we do a lot of kind of um, Warren Buffett style um, di directly investing in kind of high quality assets, publicly traded at attractive prices. Um, we've kind of partnered up with someone that um, is a rock star at that and we kind of created our own family office. Um, so that's one. And we have about 99% of our assets in kind of 
these kind of Warren Buffett style investments, we own about between 15 to 25, 30 stocks at the time, like are in our portfolio. And, um, and yeah, that, that person has done incredibly well. I mean, it's been now almost 10 years and, um, like the, the performance has been outstanding. I think on a like net IRR over the last nine years was like 15.4%. And over the last five years was like over 20, 23 or 24%. Crazy. So, um, so that, that's been great. And then I'll take, uh, I, we're, we're taking kind of a very kind of 1% uh, of, of our wealth uh, of our money. And, um, we we allocate it to very risky projects like Prisma or Bitcoin or um, or other like uh, st- uh, few startups that we've invested in. So I, I think that's that's kind of what what we've done so far. Sounds like a nice uh, dumbbell portfolio. And, and I, I must say we're we're also um, philanthropically involved. Uh, we we. Um, give a lot of money away to to people who really need it. Yeah, that's a beautiful side if you can do that to also make it happen. So another important part that I also want to talk about is the personal aspect. You mentioned that, you know, at the end when you received the acquisition offers, you're also sort of burnt out and exhausted a bit because 4 years of building a highly a fast-growing and highly profitable company is basically a lot of work and can really like take a lot of hours and effort from your side. So what also kept you going in those tough times? And I'm sure you have plenty of them uh, along the road of wildfire. So what really yeah. motivated you in the difficult times to keep going, to keep pushing? I mean, having a great co-founder um, helps a lot. Um, so I, I think you kind of, we often balanced each other out when Victoria had a tough time, I helped her to get over it. And when I had a tough time, she helped me. So I think that helps. Having a clear vision for your company helps to kind of have always the North Star where we are heading, even though, even if you face short-term challenges, um, not like, you know, not necessarily only being focused on financial gain. Um, If you're just doing it for financial gain, then kind of at the first road bump, you, you may give up. Um, and then I, I think as an entrepreneur, you got to be, you got to have grit and perseverance. Um, uh, I, I think for me, I like over the years, I started realizing that like my mental state is very much correlated with how much I sleep, like getting a good night of sleep can do wonders. Um, and then one other thing that I've noticed, um, kind of in recent years, I do a lot of, I mean, it sounds silly, but like I do a lot of sauna and cold plunge and it has an, like, it has an amazing effect on my mental state too. It, it just puts me immediately in a, in a good mood. So, um, so I think these are, and, and then I work out a lot. Like I, I work out five times a week at least. And, and try to stay in shape so and and eat well etc so these are all some hacks that i use to get through tough times just a quick follow-up question there how many hours of sleep did you get when you were building uh, wildfire and how many hours of sleep do you get now 
not much. I uh, uh, back in in the wildfire days, I I mean there were times where I had like three, four, four hours um, sleep a night. I was also much younger then. Um, uh, I I think now I I really notice if I get anything less than six, seven hours of sleep, um, I, I can really feel it during the day. Um, and my ideal, my ideal time is like seven to eight hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm kind of, uh, a little bit of a biohacker. I measure, measure how much I sleep, how much deep sleep, how much REM sleep, etc. I have like this special mattress called eight sleep that cools down my bed at an ideal temperature and kind of adapt. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit extreme with this kind of stuff, but, but uh, I, I try to optimize everything I can to, to uh, get the ideal sleep. I mean, in the end, it's pretty simple, right? If you take good care of yourself, you're going to perform at the higher level. So it's pretty simply right. correlated to the success of your company to a certain degree. Correct. Another question, you know, often you face big life decisions like who your partner is, what you work on, but also where you live and where should you live as a founder in 2021, 2022? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, you know, with this pandemic more than ever, you can live wherever you want and you can hire from ever, from wherever the best talent is. But I still think, I mean, if you're a first time founder, I still think it's, it's of advantage to be in a hub, in a startup hub. Uh, the nice thing nowadays is that Silicon Valley is not the only option. Um, you have startup hubs all over the US, all over Europe and Asia. And um, my recommendation is that you spend most of your time in a startup hub, but it's also okay to go and work remotely um, for a little while and then return to the startup hub. So I, I think being in a hub has huge advantages of being close to investors, being close to talent, being close to partners um, and being on the pulse. So uh, I think uh, I'd, I'd still recommend to, to be in a hub, but it doesn't really matter where. Okay. So if you had to pick three hubs for 2022, which cities would you choose? <laughs> um, I, I'd still... Like the Bay Area is ground zero still. Um, I um, personally, I like I, I like Euro I like being in Europe. Being from Switzerland, um, I spent uh, the whole summer in Zurich uh, this year and really enjoyed meeting founders and um, kind of getting plugged into the startup uh, system, like ecosystem there. I think Berlin. I love Berlin. Um, and, uh, and then my wife is from New Zealand. So we spent quite a bit of time in Auckland. That's also a great place. Uh, and there's more and more startups that are popping up there. So, um, so that I, I think these are some of my, my favorites, um, that I choose. Amazing. And we already mentioned in the intro, currently you are working at Prisma, building Prisma, where you changed the education for fourth to ninth graders. So, of course, we also want to briefly talk about that. So from your perspective, what is broken in our education system today that it, that we need Prisma today? I mean, um, I think we could probably do a whole separate episode about this topic. But um, 
let me let me try to be brief. But so my wife and co-founder and I have assembled an incredible team to build the school of the future called Prisma, and that that kind of builds from the ground up a digital first school. And what Prisma does differently from traditional schools is um, the following. Prisma adapts to every child's individual abilities and interests, to every family's unique lifestyle. And we're very, we're laser focused on preparing kids for the future. Um, and, and we're still, I mean, we're still very small because uh, we've only launched 13 months ago, but um, we, we, we've seen incredible academic growth in kids. We have, um, we've, we receive great feedback from parents. So uh, we, we regularly measure like net promoter scores. And uh, the last net promoter score was 81, which is considered world-class. So um, we're doing a lot of things right. I think what we're focused on um, in the coming months and, and years is to scale um, this venture. And it's, it's a very complex business because um, it's not just a software product. It's, it's a service that we provide that's... Um, that we enhance through technology, and um, and so we're, we're we're basically trying to integrate curriculum, top-notch educators with community and a software platform, um, and that's very hard to do. So we're 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 working on that, and um, and so yeah, planning to scale that over the coming months and years. Uh, that's kind of where we're at. Like as to like. What I think is broken with the uh, existing education system. Um, so, so when my wife and I started started having kids, we have three kids. They're still very young, um, and like our oldest one is is in first grade. Um, we started kind of as probably almost all parents do. They you look at schools here in the U.S. We've basically looked at every single school that's available. And what's a little bit different from Europe is that here in the US, you have kind of this vast, like you have so many choices, you have almost too many choices with schools. And when we looked at these schools here in the Bay Area, they were some very good schools and some not so good schools. And the very good schools, they were often very small and um, very expensive, so inaccessible to most people. And, and then we... And, and then they were still not quite, uh, they, they were not doing what we were looking for um, in, in an ideal education. So we kind of took a step back, did kind of looked at education in more general here in the U.S. and started realizing how broken it is. Um, you know, we, we started asking ourselves the question um, in a world where we work and engage with people across the globe. Does it still make sense to to send kids to like hyper local schools uh, with others just like them, or um, kind of in a, in a world where technology allows kids to learn exactly at the pace that's right for them? Does it still make sense to kind of have standardized curriculum, or um, in a world where where people 
can work from anywhere in the world and can live a flexible lifestyle, does it still make sense for schools to have like a super rigid schedule and be tied down to a geography? Um, so I, I think these are all some questions that we ask ourselves and we looked at the existing education system and, and we felt we're broken. And if you think about it, like if you, if you look over the last hundred years, our lives in terms of how we shop, how we entertain ourselves, how we work has changed so much over the last hundred years. But if you look at the education system, it hasn't, at its core, it hasn't changed much. And I, I think we're trying to address some of some of these problems. I think it's wonderful because it also is a, sort of a great summary of what we just discussed, right? What really comes to mind is solving your own problems and also thinking right. about why is the timing right right now? And I think that's a, a beautiful way to sort of go to the last section of today's interview to some rapid fire questions for you. Sure. I'm ready. Perfect. So the first one, salary, commission, or equity? Um, definitely equity. Then the next one, growth or profitability? It depends. I, I think as we discussed before, like growth for venture-backed uh, companies and profitability for bootstrapped companies. And if you had a choice between founder or investor, what would your ideal job look like? Well, founder, definitely founder. Um, I'm always on the side of the builder and the founder. And I think founders make anyways way better investors. Nice. And do you have any favorite advice that you would give to your 20-year-old self? Um, I don't think I would change too much. I think uh, my advice would be to go, like to skip, you know, I in after college, I went to investment banking, kind of did a fairly traditional path. I, I should have skipped that and um, gone straight to the startup world. Um, start earlier. That That's my, what, what my advice would be. Nice. And the very last question for you today, New Zealand, United States, or Switzerland? That's a tough question. I think New Zealand for the natural beauty the United States for the entrepreneurial spirit and Switzerland for family, snowboarding and the amazing bread and pastry culture. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, we can all live with that. That's perfect. <laughs> Alain, thank you so much, first of all, for building Swisspreneur and for all the support you've given us over the past years. It's really amazing to count on you and just great to see what you've built here and uh, also for taking the time today. And I hope, and I'm pretty sure that this was not the last podcast episode that we did with you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, it's amazing what you guys have built and I'm super excited to, to uh, be on uh, show episode number 200. This episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.